hours since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our teaching teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion. To which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to expand in faith, faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because because they they anchor us in something something which can can hold us, us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we exist to join god's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching Our scripture is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in the world without God, and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who are far away from him, and peace to Jews who are near. Now all of us can come to the Father through that same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles were also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. The word of the Lord. There we go. Good morning, everybody. Should I do anything not to ring? All right. I have to apologize to Betsy. Um, I, uh, <laughs> when I chose, you know, there's, there's four liturgy texts, and when I chose my text for this morning, I forgot to tell Kara and Betsy that maybe she can just read a small portion that I'm going to be focusing on. <laughs> Betsy texted me and was kind of like, wow, long text. I was like, oh, so sorry about that. So it's good to be back with you. I haven't been back to Genesis in person yet. And uh, I made a note in my, in my sermon notes to pay attention to how it felt to be here. 
Um, I don't know if this is your first time too, perhaps, but boy, it feels. I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't anticipate how much the smell and the lights would kind of hit me and make it feel like home and family. And so it's it's really good to be with you again. And uh, good morning to all of you on Zoom as well. Um, sorry about that. If that's me, uh, I chose the liturgy text I chose this morning. Kind of randomly. I chose it because it reminded me of when I first became a real Christian. Um, when I, I read Paul's letter to the Ephesians a lot when I became a real Christian. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that story. Because I loved the triumphalism of it. I loved the, the victory of Christ themes that you get in Ephesians. Um, that really resonated with me for whatever reason. Um, and I say real Christian tongue-in-cheek, of course. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, but barely. Um, kind of Christmas, Easter, and whatever mom managed to be able to drag me there. And I went off to college, and I had this conversion experience deep in the hollers of West Virginia on a spring break youth works mission trip, because of course I did. <laughs> That's kind of when I had my... Um, uh, conversion experience, sometimes now I refer to it as my meltdown, and I, uh, I got back, I got back from that, and my first instinct was to check out the Lutheran church in town, because growing up Catholic, I kind of always thought of the Lutherans as the slightly more chill Catholics, and that seemed safe to me, and um, that didn't really work out, so somehow I went there, from there and kind of took a really hard right into the Pentecostal movement, starting with a revival church in Pensacola, Florida, which I don't need to tell you the story of that, but speaking in tongues, prophesying, slaying in the spirit, tambourines, can I get any men? Like that, you know, that kind of energy. And then from there, summer of 99, this would have been, I went deep, deep into the Calvinism and Christian hedonism of John Piper. Um, and for years, I read every scrap of paper John Piper had ever written. I went way into the neo-reformed neo Calvinist movement. If you don't know what any of that means, it's not important. You get the point. It was intense. Um, and then I went to seminary, and, uh, which is like grad school for pastors, and became a pastor. And suddenly part of my job was to take care of people and not just read books which is a huge bummer. Um, and and I, I, honestly, I loved, I loved and still love pastoring people. But if my experience in pastoring and caring for people revealed anything to me, it was that the neat theological boxes that I liked so much didn't fit very well on real people. And in fact, they didn't fit very well on the biblical texts either if you included all the texts, not just the ones that fit in the box. And then I wasn't a pastor anymore. And one of the things that came along with that was that I didn't have any more statements of faith that I had to adhere to in order to keep receiving a paycheck. And as callous or as shallow as that sounds, when you're a pastor, when you've been trained to do nothing but be a pastor, and you don't know what else you could do for work, um, and you have to provide for a family, 
A paycheck's a really powerful motivator to stick with the statement of faith, to toe the line, to not explore questions that might lead you away from um, your statement of faith or the rules of the church. But suddenly that was gone. There was no more statement of faith I had to adhere to. And a gateway drug called N.T. Wright came along, and then Rachel Held Evans and Nadia Boltz-Weber, and I started hearing the voices of black people more and liberal Christians and gay Christians and found Genesis Covenant Church. And listen, the, the insane thing about that whole journey is that at every step of the way, at, at, at every at every stage of that spiritual journey, I experienced a sense of finally having arrived. Like, now I think I've got it. First all play question. I'm, I'm curious about this. I'm curious if anyone can relate to that. The first all play question is, and by the way, if you're new to Genesis, all play questions are just our way of hearing, how do we say it, the voice of the choir and not just the voice of the soloist. Did I get that right? Yeah, okay. So how it works is I ask a, an honest question and you respond with a thoughtful or witty or just sarcastic remark. Uh, feels like this room is often about 50-50 on that. So here's my first question. In one word, or maybe two or three words max, how would you describe your spiritual journey? I don't want the whole story. I just want to hear one or two or three words. Messy. <laughs> yeah. Chaotic, cringy. I love that word, cringy. My kids use that word. What was it? Adventure. Okay. I can't see the responses online, so my apologies if you're on Zoom. Any other words come to mind? Has anyone else had that experience of feeling like you've arrived? Like, now I think I kind of believe what I'm pretty much always going to believe. I hope so. I, like, I feel so stupid if I'm the only one that, that has regularly happens to. And, and, and my spiritual journey has continued. I really don't find labels helpful anymore. I, I, I check a lot of boxes in the agnostic column now, I guess. So maybe whoever keeps nominating me for elder, like, factor that in. Um, but <laughs> or I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I guess all I would really mean by agnostic, though, is that I just have a lot more questions than I have answers. By a long shot, a lot more questions than I have answers, and I really think it's unlikely that I'm ever going to arrive somewhere. Or maybe I'm a Christian, but I'm just not a real Christian. I don't know. Whatever. I have the microphone. My point is, I have, because I have more questions than I have answers, I'm really interested in how people's thinking works, how people's thinking changes over time, and I relish dialogue. If you've known me for any length of time, you know that I could dialogue about ideas all day and all night. I can do small talk with people for about 12 minutes and then I have to like spend two hours alone in the dark room. But I can talk about ideas all day, all night. And whether you love Paul's writings or tend to be frustrated by them or both, no one can deny that Paul was a thoughtful guy. 
So I want to engage with the text this morning in a way that maybe isn't super normal for our church, although what's normal at Genesis? I don't know. So in in this passage, Paul's addressing the church in the city of Ephesus, which is on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to this church that meets together there, probably in a home. And um, he's addressing the issue of unity in the church, right? Many of us know that the church was the first time, as far as I know, that Jewish people and non-Jewish people who had some very particular cultural and social differences and like social norm differences, first time that they tried to come together to form one spiritual community, which was a really radical experiment, honestly. And as you can imagine, it didn't always go smoothly. There was a lot of friction. There was a lot of infighting. There was in particular, an ongoing debate in the church about whether the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people in the church, would have to adopt Jewish uh, customs and kosher food laws and social norms. And because the early Christian movement rose out of Judaism. And so basically, it was a debate where the Jewish members were saying, how do we embrace Christ and preserve our religious and cultural identity while welcoming the Gentiles into our house? Like, what rules should still apply? And the Gentile members were saying, who said it's your house? I think this is God's house, so I don't know if you guys get to make the rules. And the Jews were kind of like, well, you don't have to be a jerk about it. And the Gentiles were like, you're the jerk, jerk. And it was messy. It got really messy. This issue kind of plagued the early church. And so Paul had his work cut out for him, and he's trying to address that conflict by explaining this idea that Christ's sacrifice, that his, his death, one of the things that it did, one of the, part of the power that it had was to create peace between Jew and Gentile in the church. Okay? And that's the part of this passage that I, I love and that resonates with me. Um, and, and I'll tell you why. And by the way, I'm also going to get to the part of this passage that I don't really find helpful. Um, I, I'm at a place in my spiritual journey where I have no problem owning the fact that some of the things the Apostle Paul says are inspiring and beautiful to me and helpful and powerful, and some of the things he says I just find so abrasive and incompatible with the way that I choose to view God and the world and people and what is going on in the universe. So I'll get to that a little bit. But let me read this to you again so I can just show you the beautiful part of what I see here. Starting in verse 14, Paul writes, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. I think that's a beautiful image. What a beautiful way to think about the intents and effects of Jesus' sacrifice. 
And if there are any skeptics or atheists or agnostics or doubters or whatever in the room, one of the things that I love most about this paragraph and find so beautiful about it is that it doesn't even really require Jesus to have been God or to have risen for the dead for it to be true. Whatever else Jesus' sacrifice means for us personally or cosmically, his death did fundamentally change the way this early group of Gentile and Jewish Christians experienced their faith their community, and each other. His sacrifice did do that in this community. And so I think Paul paints a really beautiful picture here. It's, it, to me, it's more compelling a picture of the effect of Jesus' sacrifice than many of the pictures that have been offered up by the church and, frankly, many of the pictures that Paul himself offers up elsewhere. The picture he's painted here is Jesus, the divine man or the God who would die for peace. All play question. When you think of Jesus as the God who would die for peace between people, what else do you think? What does that make you feel? What images or ideas or pictures are brought to your mind? The God who would die for peace between people. What comes to mind? Scapegoat. Anything else come to mind? Awe. The cross. The cross. It's outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the peace between people is more important than being right. Now what am I going to do with the rest of my sermon? You kind of just preached it for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's such a, yeah, it's, it, it's a really an amazing picture to me. And despite this beautiful picture Paul paints for us, peace and unity in the church seem like they're pretty, still pretty hard to come by because, of course, even after 2,000 years, the church has never been able to solve its fundamental problem of being composed 100% of people. And nevertheless, <laughs> I don't let that make me cynical. I'm inspired. I'm inspired. I'm drawn toward the idea of Jesus choosing to sacrifice his life to make peace between people. When I'm asked what still draws me toward church, toward the Christian narrative, even though I've experienced some movement away from it, it's these ideas and images that compel me. This image compels me to be a peacemaker in my own life, and it causes me to recognize that wherever I am in my spiritual journey at the moment, so many of the good things, the good impulses that I see in myself stem from the Christian message, the Christian narrative. Now, I do want to say, I'm not nearly as drawn to Paul's imagery and language and ideas in verses 11 and 12. Let me read that part again. Actually, before I read it, I just want to make this note. We all know this, living in the 21st century, that it's tough to read tone over text, right? We've all misread someone's tone over email or a text message or whatever. It's really, really easy to do, and so you got to be careful reading tone into text. That said, I don't love the tone of this for these couple verses. I looked up all the translations, and I can't find one that doesn't feel cringy to me. So, let me read this. He says, verse 11, 
Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. So at least in his letter to the Ephesians, this is Paul's view of the situation for people who don't follow God or don't know God the way that Paul does. They're without God and without hope. It's this bleak picture, living apart, excluded, did not know God, without God, without hope. He uses a lot of separation language. Paul, both here and honestly lots of places in his letters, he uses a lot of separation and distance language, emphasizes God's distance from those who don't truly know him. Except for the time that Paul wasn't big on that idea of separation. Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians somewhere around 62 AD, probably from a Roman jail or from house arrest. Twelve years earlier, he was in the city of Athens. You guys remember this story? He's in the city of Athens on one of his missionary journeys. I can't remember which one, the second one maybe. And he said something there that sounds very different to me. And maybe it's just me. I'm going to read it, and you can tell me if you don't think it's very different. This is from the book of Acts, which, as as many of you know, the book of Acts chronicles the early journeys of Paul and Peter and others around the Mediterranean world, spreading the Christian message um, in the first century. And Paul in chapter 17, well, it's not Paul who records it, Luke in chapter 17 records this opportunity Paul had to speak to a group of reformed, uh, not reformed, (laughs) a group of, um, why did I say that? These philosophers, these esteemed philosophers called the Areopagus, who met on Mars Hill in Athens. So here's an excerpt from the speech starting in verse 22. Paul says, Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, To an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Now listen to this. His purpose, so God's purpose in creating humanity, was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Some translations say, in him we live and move and have our being. And then Paul kind of slam dunks his point by quoting Greek poets to these Greek philosophers. He says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. All of us are God's offspring. That sounds very different to me than what he says in Ephesians chapter 2 with all of the separated and excluded and without hope language. And I don't know if your view of the Bible allows you for Paul to change his mind between 
Acts 17 and Ephesians 2. That's okay if it doesn't. I'm just relating my experience of reading these two passages side by side and saying, whoa, those sound very, very different. And so I wonder, I wonder what happened. I wonder how he goes from thinking, to, like, thinking God isn't very far from any of us because in him we live and move and have our being to 12 years later saying the Gentiles were separated living apart, excluded, did not know, without God, without hope. It's an interesting question to me because I find it so fascinating that every thoughtful person's thoughts evolve. I was sharing some of my wild ride through Christianity earlier to illustrate just some of the ways that my thoughts have evolved. And I'm sure most of us have experienced some evolution in our thoughts, at least in some small ways. Because people learn, people gather experiences, people read, we, we meet new people, we spend time thinking, we hear music, we have conversations, we pray and meditate, we watch movies, we spend time watching Fox News or MSNBC or whatever. We bring in information and experiences and it shapes how we think. And Paul, in particular, had a lot of time in jails a lot of time in house arrest, a lot of time on boats, on long trips, with time to think. And I think evolution in our thinking is a good thing. In my mind, in my experience, there's a very high correlation between people whose thinking evolves and people who spend time thinking. And it's why I try not to be too hard on myself for having thought and said and even preached in front of a lot of people, ideas that I disagree with now or even in some cases think might have been harmful or even wounding to people. And knowing this room, I'm guessing I'm not alone in that. Have you ever done something or said something to someone that you now know may have been harmful or hurtful to them that you said on the basis of something that you were really convinced of at one point but you no longer are convinced of? It's a bummer of a feeling to have. But I practice self-forgiveness, maybe not very well. Maybe we could all be a little bit better about that. But I also am not too hard on myself because I know that between the time that I said those things and now I've been thinking and praying and talking with people and listening and reading and hearing music. I think Paul did the same between Acts 17 and Ephesians 2. And I understand his reason why, I think. It's clear to me that as Paul moves from the beginning of his ministry toward the end of his ministry, he moves more and more toward this idea that Christ is the center of everything. He's the answer to everything. He's the solution to every problem. And he does that because he wants to highlight Christ's power, his glory, his majesty, his sovereignty, his supremacy. Those are the things that excite the Apostle Paul. That's what he wants to highlight. And if you want to highlight Jesus' glory, his, his centrality as much as possible, when you're thinking about the space between God and Gentiles who don't know God, you don't want that to be a thin veil like it sounds in Acts 17. You want that to be a yawning, hopeless chasm so that Christ is that much more magnified as the solution to the problem. 
And that's how he gets to verse 13. But now you have been united with Christ once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. In verse 18, now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. This kind of stuff is the, is the basis for the illustration we've all seen of like us on one side and there's the cliff and God's on the other side and there's the cliff and what's in the middle? I'm not the only one who got evangelized, right? It's the cross in the middle, right? The cross bridges the huge gap, right? That's, that's Paul's theology. And there was a time in my journey of faith, and who knows, maybe I'll end up back there because if I've learned anything, it's that where I'm at now is probably not where I'm always going to be. There was a time in my faith when those ideas really excited me. God's supremacy, Jesus' majesty, the, the sovereignty and the providence. And, and I was really inspired by those ideas. The, Jesus as the, the bridge that closes the yawning gap between God and sinners. And at this point in my journey of faith, I'm just much more drawn to the idea that God is not far from any one of us no matter what we think or believe, and that we can, as Paul says, feel our way toward God and perhaps even find God, for in him we live and move and have our being. I got to this spot in my sermon writing, and I said, okay, time to wrap this thing up, tie up the loose ends, drill the main point, and I realized I didn't really have a main point. Um, And I was kind of like, well, does there need to be a main point? Because I've preached hundreds of sermons. And, you know, when people come up to you afterwards and tell you what's helpful in your sermon, they never mention the main point. There's never, ever. So I I, I don't have a main point. (laughs) My intention here in these few minutes, uh, which I'm so grateful for, I'm so grateful to be able to speak to you and to be a part of community where you, a community where you can be wherever you are. My intention here was just to give you some ideas to mix into your thinking, into your experiencing, into your conversing and praying and meditating. I hope that you will think about this portrait Paul paints of Jesus as the God who would die for peace. I hope you'll think about the foolishness, perhaps, of ever thinking we've arrived at the correct understanding of God. Maybe you'll think about which of Paul's two images you're more drawn to. And they're both beautiful images. The image of Christ conquering the chasm between God and sinners, or the idea that God in Christ has never been far from any person. Because in God we live and move and have our being. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's move into the prayers of confession. If you want to grab your liturgy. The Lord asks, where are you? The Lord asks, where is my church? Here we are. The Lord asks, where is my heartbroken community? Here we are. The Lord asks, Where are you? Here I am. Time and time again, throughout 
Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.